Well, um, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts 8. We're going to, we've, we've taken a little break from Acts the past couple weeks to look at mission, vision, values as a church, recovenant last week, which was great. We're going to, we're going to pick back up into Acts this week. And um, we're in Acts 8. We're going to look at verses 9 through 25. And uh, I'm going to read, I'm going to read this account. And uh, I'd like for us to stand up as we read it, something new here, but I want us to show some, some additional reverence to God's Word when we read it. I think it's, it can just become something else that we read again and again and again, but when we read God's Word, this really is the Word of the Lord, and it ought to be something that we revere highly. So, so I'm going to read, I'm gonna read the, the text, and then I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and then I want you to say, thanks be to God. Okay, this is the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. So, Acts 8, starting in verse 9, it says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given uh, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the, the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritan. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can take a seat. Now let me pray one more time. Lord, as we open your word, would you uh, illuminate it for us, God? We just express our dependence on you. We need you to take your word, to reveal its truths to us, and then to apply it into our, our lives. So, God, give me clarity as I teach and walk through this text and give these brothers and sisters, as you have me, give them applications for their lives in ways that we're to, we're to take it and run with it into our everyday lives, Lord. We love you. We praise Jesus in your name. Amen. So, a bit of a refresher before we just go right into the contents of the text, of just the context, what's going on here. So, um, during this time in church history, the church in Jerusalem is expanding at a rapid rate, such that Luke, he recorded the high priest stating to arrested apostles in chapters before, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. So, lots and lots of activity going on. And then, in uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, it's recorded that the word of the Lord continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So it was a, it was a glorious time in the church, right? Foundation is being set. It's being established. Lots of people are coming to Christ. But it also came at a great cost, right? One of the leaders of the church, Stephen, he was full of grace, full of power. He's preaching the gospel. He's being used to perform miracles. Um, he was falsely accused. He was arrested. And as a result of his spirit-empowered boldness, he was publicly stoned to death. He was martyred, the first Christian martyr. And as a result of his martyrdom, there was this massive uptick in persecution in Jerusalem. And as a, as a result of that uptick, uh, well, it's recorded in, in chapter 8, verse 1. I'll just read it. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, all the believers are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So persecution lands, the disciples are scattered all over the place, but the apostles stay local in Jerusalem. So in, in accordance with Christ's command, you remember Christ commanded, if they persecute you, persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So in accordance to that command, the church fled Jerusalem to escape the persecution that was there. And it seemed like you would think, if you just stopped right there, you would think all this momentum that the church was experiencing and the power of the gospel, that it would come to a halt, like in, in a moment. But actually the exact opposite happened, right? The church actually explodes, and we learn that Man, this persecution and the scattering of these everyday disciples all throughout Judea and Samaria, this was actually God's providential plan to take His gospel to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. It's fulfillment of what Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 before He ascended back into heaven. It says, you, he, he said to the, to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this is where we land in our narrative today, okay? Luke's continuing his account of the early church, and he's following Philip in Samaria. Philip, he's one of those, back in Acts chapter 6, he was one of those seven leaders that was selected by the church to lead in the distribution of, of, of food for the widows, and not just that, he was leading in other capacities as well, because we're going to see him here preaching. So we can assume that he was also not just serving tables, he's also, there's teaching involved with what he's doing. Um, and so anyway, he flees in the persecution with the rest of the church. And he, just like us, he finds himself in a new city. And when you find yourself in a new city, what do you do? You look for work. You settle in. You get to meet people. You learn where to buy your groceries from. You do all this normal stuff to live. But what, what Philip didn't do, he didn't leave behind his spirituality and his, his, uh, the nature that he now had of being filled with the Spirit. That was who he was. And so as he's doing these normal, everyday things in this new town of Samaria, he's also preaching the gospel. He sees, man, these people are far from God. These people are broken. These people are experiencing darkness. So I have the answer. I have the light. I must teach them. I must preach. And so God uses Philip, as, as we've just read, uses Philip in pretty amazing ways to take the gospel ultimately for the first time to the Samaritans, which is huge. And we'll, we'll see that as we get into the passage. This is like a huge moment in redemptive history that takes place right here. Um, so in the text, there's kind of a clear structural outline. It's clear. It's, it's not hard to see. Verses 9 through 13 form kind of a, a cohesive um, uh, cohesive text, I guess you could say. And it's just the gospel extending to the Samaritans. That's what's recorded there, 9 through 13. 14 through 17, 
can kind of be a dicey passage. And again, we're going to get through that. It can be kind of dicey. What in the world is going on? But what's really happening is that the church is being united by the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on there. And then in 18 through 25, we see this new believer, Simon. We see him. Now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see him being sanctified by the Spirit. All right. So just a real clear, it's a clear breakdown there. But in all of that, what's really clear, and for me as I've been studying this text as kind of the the main point, I think, of this text, is that the kingdom of God is unstoppable and it is a conquering kingdom. The kingdom of God is unstoppable and it's a conquering kingdom. All right, you with me? God's kingdom, unstoppable, and it's conquering. All right? So we're going going to get into it. So verse 9, look at at that one with me again. This is what's recorded. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this is kind of the, this is the context of Samaria that Philip finds himself in. And really what it is, is you've got a city that is, that is clouded, it's covered in spiritual darkness. This is a city that is apart from the kingdom of God. And Simon, he's put forward as a prime example of, hey, this is what's going on in this city before the kingdom of God breaks into it. So, so Simon, he's a popular leader, we gather from the text. There's people that, that are listening to him. He's got influence. He's got some authority. And the reason for that is because he practiced magic. All right? So now the magic here that's being talked about, this is not you know, the fun little sleight of hand card trick magic that we kind of talk about. It's not the magic that you go and you buy from the little, you know, the stores. You get the little magic box and it's got the little trinkets that you can wow the kids with. That's not this type. That's not this magic. This magic is, is sorcery. It's really the word, the original word there is sorcery. So you've got Simon. He is a literally a sorcerer. That's who he is. So he's practicing black magic, sorcery. And this is his means of, of gathering people in, of amazing them, of, of bringing in influence. It's that he's a... He's a magician, not sleight of hand. He's a sorcerer, okay? Um, and sorcery throughout the scriptures, again, this is not, you know, it's a playful magic. This is, this is literally taking the powers of darkness, taking the powers of the legions of demons, and harnessing them for your own good and gain. Ultimately, it's to be an even further slave of the devil. That, that's really what it is. And the power that, that Simon was executing, that he was performing, again, it's enough to say he's performing miracles and there's a huge crowd. They're, they're saying that he's great from the least to the greatest. It's not just a trick on, on the impoverished, uneducated people. To the greatest also, they're being deceived by this power. The power that Simon was harnessing is truly power. The powers of darkness are actually powers, like real power. The devil and his legions, they often do unearthly things throughout the scriptures and even today to distract, deceive, and enslave the people of God. That's his game. That's what he's after. You think about Moses before Pharaoh, right? Moses, what, 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 what did, uh, how did God redeem the people of Israel underneath Pharaoh's slavery? What, what, was, what was sent? The plagues, right? Ten plagues. Now, the first couple plagues, guess what? Pharaoh's magicians... Pharaoh's magicians were actually able to replicate the the miracles. They were able to take water, turn it into blood. That's what they did. They were able to take 
there was frogs was the second one. They were able to make frogs appear out of nowhere. I don't know about you, that's a lot of power, okay? That's a lot of power to be able to do that. You think about Job. Once the Lord removed his heads of protection from Job, what ensued in Job's life? Torture. I mean, he was just absolutely tortured. Again, the powers that Simon was harnessing, the powers of the kingdom of darkness are actually powers. Such that people were saying of Simon, this is the power of God that is called great. His magic was bringing him prestige. Money is bringing him fame from the people of Samaria. And what you get, you get a picture of these people in this city. They're, they're shrouded in darkness. They're shrouded in fear. There's pagan idolatry rampant throughout the city. And what you really see is the people in a city ripe for the glorious light of the gospel that is spread all throughout Jerusalem. This is a people that are ready. They're ready for the kingdom. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verses 12 through 13. But when they believed Philip, remember before this, Philip was preaching. They believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The sorcerer was amazed. The kingdom of God and the truth of Jesus Christ ultimately triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. In the light of the kingdom of Christ, in the light of his glorious gospel, the powers of darkness cannot stand. Not only will, not, not only will they, but they must surrender to the kingdom of Christ. For our Lord himself promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And you, you think about that text right there. Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. What do gates do? That's the question. They keep people out, right? And a strong gate is effective. It keeps you out. But what did Christ promise? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, is a conquering forward ever kingdom. Such that these gates of darkness that are seeking to hold people into slavery and bondage and darkness, this sorcery, they can't prevail against the kingdom of Christ. No, he penetrates. Unstoppable, conquering kingdom. You know, the powers of darkness, they're immense. They exert much influence over people throughout the world. But we know a God and a king who's stronger and mightier. He's conquered. On one occasion, I love this one. This is good. On one occasion, the Lord, the Lord Jesus was practicing miracles. And the Pharisees, they, they were accusing Christ of using witchcraft, of using magic, sorcery, to perform his miracles. <clears throat> and this is what Jesus said in response to them, Matthew 12, 29. He says, it's wonderful, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. That's a powerful illustration for what Christ has done and what Christ is currently doing in our world. Look, Will, this is a good question for you. You're a big guy. You're a strong man, right? If someone comes into your house and is not as strong as you and his intent is to plunder your goods... What will you do to that man? That's right. You're going to whoop that boy. You're going to whoop him. You're going to say, get out of my house. Who do you think you are? Get out, right? But on the flip side, <clears throat> if someone enters into our house, even though we're strong, even though we're big, and they are stronger than we are, 
and their intention is to plunder our house, well, are we gonna are we gonna be able to keep them from their from their mission? By the grace of God. By the okay, by the grace of God. But typically, no, but typically, right? Typically, they're gonna bind us, and then they're gonna have their way. This is what Christ is doing. The strong man is Jesus Christ. He has come in, the one who is mightier, the one who is stronger. He has entered into, yes, the kingdom of darkness is strong, powerful. Make frogs appear out of nowhere. Keep people in fear. Keep people in darkness. A powerful, powerful influence. And yet, the stronger man has entered in. And he's bound the strong man. And now, the kingdom of Christ is plundering the goods of the kingdom of darkness. Isn't that good? This is Christ, the stronger man. And in our passage, Philip, what he's doing, he's faithfully obeying the Great Commission. And he's driven, he's driven by his home by persecution. He's, he's, he's one of those faithful brothers. He and his family, they're driven out. And when they've received the Great Commission, they had heard, the, they had seen what Christ was doing. They had seen the stronger man plundering the kingdom of darkness. And they take that same thing with them into Samaria. He preaches the gospel. He makes disciples, and the people are transformed. Even Simon, the one who, uh, whom the enemy was using to exert great fear and dominance over the Samaritan people, he was overcome by the glorious Christ. Even he was amazed, is what Luke records. An- another central truth in this text that, that, the merit- that this narrative makes clear and displays the power of the stronger man, Jesus Christ, is the, is the unity that we're about to see as we keep going through this text between the Jews and Samaritans. You see, back in this day, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. I mean, there was, there was animosity between them like, like nothing we've ever experienced in our modern day. Okay, they, they just hated each other. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as if they were unclean, dirty, unfit to even be around. And if you're one of the Samaritans and somebody thinks of you like that, how are you going to think about them? You know, you're going to hate them. Over time, you're going to hate them. For generations, this was the divide. They hated each other. But think about the power of God at work right now in this passage. Philip, who's a Jew, he's led to preach the good news to them. And such that the Samaritans, they forsake their beliefs, they forsake their prejudices and their disdain for the Jews, and they follow the Messiah who was himself a Jew. Only the power of God can break through that type of dividing wall. So look at uh, verse 14 through 17. It's what, this is what's written. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So faith in the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and baptism into the kingdom of God unites even the most divided of peoples. That's what happens right here. You've got, man, you've got a common, you've got a common Lord, a common faith, and a common baptism. That right there unites, unites the most hostile of peoples together. Those three things. Nothing else was there. Common Lord, common faith, common baptism. That's what unites them together. So the apostles, they're in Jerusalem. While the persecution is going on, they catch wind of what's happening down in Samaria. They, they catch wind that the word of Christ is being received. Miracles are going on. And again, this is the first time this has occurred in the history of the church. So naturally, they went to see for themselves the grace and power of the Lord that was at work to save these Samaritans. And when we, when we first read these verses, this is how I used to think about this verse. But as I've studied it this week, my view has changed. 
when you first read these verses, what you, what you assume in reading this is that the apostles were coming down to Samaria to solve some problem. There's some, oh, well, the Samaritans are down there believing. There's got to be something funky going on. Let's go down there and get it corrected. That's what, that's what you think. Or, or you, you, you read it and you're, you're thinking that the apostles are coming to do some ecclesiastical flex or something, you know? Uh, who, who, who does Philip think he is starting a new church down there? No, 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 not outside of our authority. You kind of you kind of read it and you think about it in that light. That's at least how I how I how I had thought about it. But the rest of the passage does not confirm does not confirm either of those, and rather shows an acceptance of the new work of God that was going on. What we really see is that these apostles were coming to verify the accounts that they were hearing. For again, this is the first time something like this had happened. So they're coming to verify it, and not only to verify it, but to join in with it, to unite with these new brothers and sisters if it proved to be true. That's what's really going on. So they arrived, they recognized the work of God in the Samaritans, but they also saw, again, they had been following Christ, they had, lit, they had walked with the Christ, they had been with Him when He was ascended, they had received His promises firsthand, they were there on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls, so they had been, they had been with the church all throughout. So when they get there, they see, man, this is a genuine work of God. Look at what's going on. But then they also recognize something's also just a little off. There's something missing. And the thing that was missing is the, is the life, the, little, the spark in followers of Christ that comes from the Holy Spirit. That life. Is that the, the Holy Spirit which animates the life, of, the life of a Christian was missing. So as a sign of unity... And a sign of identification with the Samaritans. That's what the apostles were doing. As a sign of unity, as a sign of identifying with them, the apostles lay their hands on these new believers and they pray to the Lord that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And the Lord graciously gives the Holy Spirit to these new believers in Christ. That's what happens. I can't imagine how awesome that would have been to be there. To see these brothers and sisters, brand new in the Lord, they were shrouded in darkness, enslaved to the devil. Now they've been freed up by the gospel of Christ, and yet they hadn't yet received the Spirit. But there's joy in the city. We read that earlier in chapter 8. There's joy in the city. But now, these apostles who have been fought, walked with their Lord, they had talked with the Lord, they then come into their city and they're putting their hands on them and they pray, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. These are new believers hungry for the Word of God, hungry for the, the, the living waters given by the Holy Spirit, and then they receive it. Pretty amazing to think about what that would have been like. But naturally, naturally, there's a question, and if you're asking this question, that means you're a good, good Bible reader, you're a good Bible student. You ask the question then, well, why on earth did the Spirit not come upon them immediately? Because that's what we see throughout the rest of the Scriptures. That when you profess faith in Christ, when you turn from your sin, you believe in the gospel, that the Spirit falls, and you're sealed in the moment for the day of, for the day of uh, redemption when Christ returns. That's what you see. So the question's asked, well, why did, why did the Spirit tarry? After all, they had, been, they had believed the gospel, and they were even baptized. They were baptized in the name of Christ, too. So here's some options for us. Are we to conclude maybe there was something deficient about their faith? In the Lord, maybe their, maybe their faith was deficient in some way. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case because Luke overstresses the fact that Philip's preaching was orthodox. He talks about preaching the kingdom of God. 
the good news of Christ. He does it. He says that again and again and again. It's like he's saying, and this preaching of Philip, it was orthodox. It was in line with, with the church. So they weren't, their faith wasn't deficient in some way. And their response seems to be genuine as well. So maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't fall because there's no apostles present. That's another option. The apostles weren't there. Every other conversion, the apostles were at least in the same proximity that we see. But that can't be the case either. Because later in chapter 9, when Saul's baptized, uh, Luke makes it very clear that the Spirit comes upon him, removes the scales from his eyes, and the Spirit seals Saul. There was no apostle there. Ananias was not, a, was not an apostle. He's an everyday dude seeking to follow the Lord. So that option doesn't work. Here's another one. Maybe it was because, maybe, maybe they had already received the Spirit, but they needed to receive the Spirit in a fuller sense, maybe. Maybe for inspiration or for they needed to receive some charismatic giftings or something. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe they needed a, a, a fuller filling of the Spirit for mission or, or something. Maybe they had the Spirit, but they needed, they needed more. But there's no way that that could be a possibility either. Because Luke was insistent, he said, had not yet fallen on any of them. The Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. So what are we, what are we left with? The best explanation is that God Himself providentially withheld the Spirit until the coming of Peter and John in order that the Samaritans might be seen to be fully incorporated into the community of the Jerusalem Christians who had received the Spirit at Pentecost. God wanted to ensure the unity of His people. He wanted to ensure that the dividing wall of hostility had been broken down. That's what He was doing. A unique occurrence. These brothers and sisters, are, they are in Christ. They are baptized. They believe the true gospel. But you could sense, again, this is years and years and years of hatred and animosity between these two groups. So you could, I mean, you just think about it over the, over the years to come. Yeah, well, you, you have the Spirit, but you weren't there at Pentecost. You don't come from that type of lineage. The Lord erases that completely and shows them, no, no, no. These, these new brothers, these Samaritan brothers they, and sisters, they are united with these, this Jerusalem church. They are one, the same Spirit. The dividing wall of hostility is torn down. So again, God withheld the gift of the Holy Spirit for His own revelatory and salvific purposes, not because of an inadequate response of the Samaritans. It's for the sake of uniting His people together. The apostles, they came as reliable witnesses on behalf of the Jerusalem church. Not to impart the Spirit because of their office. It, the, the Christian leaders don't, don't possess some special Holy Spirit you know, bomb or something that you give to people. That's not how it works. It's the same Lord who gives. But for the sake of unity, the Lord allows the Spirit to, to wait so they would be united together in the Spirit. Yeah. Praise be to God. Yeah, yeah man. It was, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the uniqueness is in John four, the the spirit had not yet been given. Yeah, yeah. So th that's the difference. No. So the Samaritans, in a way, they're primed mm -hmm. for for the gospel, right? Like yep. they're receptive to spiritual truths, and yet they're they're still submitting to the kingdom of darkness. So yeah, it'd be safe to assume that that maybe that was the primer mm -hmm. for what Philip was then preaching. Yeah, I mean, maybe the Samaritan woman's there. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, just curious, like, yeah. thinking about it. That was a funny answer. I wonder if she was there. I wonder if uh, John and 
Yep, yep. Oh, Johnny Cage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's not it's not a bad assumption. I think it's a probably a good one. Um, but yeah, it's just cool to think about that. You know, it's just the Lord um, and His work there. But anyway, praise be to God. This is what the gospel does, right? Frees us from the domain of darkness, and then takes groups that hate each other. I mean, an animosity again that we don't quite comprehend, and unites them together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism unites anybody and everybody. That's how it works. Beautiful. Um, all right, there's more. We've got to keep going. Um, so let's, let's keep going. Verses 18 through 25. Um, <coughs> I want to read, these, read this passage for us, and then we'll, we'll keep going. Now when Simon, so again, the apostles, sorry, catch right up. The apostles are still there. They're, they're, the Spirit has fallen. We can assume that they're doing some teaching. Maybe they're doing a little bit of correcting, filling out some of those theological gaps that, that they, the Samaritans had. So it says, um, it says now, verse 18, when Simon saw, Simon, this is our buddy Simon, the sorcerer, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, listen to this heart of repentance, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So again, Simon, brand new Christian, and before he had submitted to Christ's lordship, he was making his living off sorcery. That's what, he, that's what he was doing. Dude, pretty clouded in darkness. And according to our passage, again, he had lots of attention, lots of notoriety, very popular dude. He had a big following. Over the years, what that would have done, think about what that would have done to you, men specifically, you know, who we, we're, we're selfishly ambitious people by nature. That's who we are. So you've got this huge following, and then all of a sudden, the kingdom that, that you are serving is no more. And you're in the kingdom of light now. But think about it. You've lost all that. Your livelihood's gone. All that's gone. I mean, that'd be really hard. That would be really tough. So over the years, surely Simon's life and his, his means of making money, it would have truncated his view of himself. And it would have created some common channels or some common pathways for sinful thinking, sinful believing, sinful behavior, Right? That's just what happens. That's how we are as people. We, we, you, you sin, it leads to more sin. It's like this pathway is created into darkness, right? So Simon had lived years into this life of sorcery. So man, all these roads into these sinful patterns, they were already there. So again, with those common pathways for sin ingrained in his life, he sees the authority that the apostles are carrying as they come from Jerusalem, and he, he sees the Holy Spirit given through the laying on of their hands. So again, Simon, he used to have authority like that. He desires to have that authority again. And he offers them money to receive it. That's what he thinks he could do. This is what he used to do. He would have, that's, that's how that world would have worked. You see a sorcerer come in with a certain type of magic, you go and you offer him money, and they would teach you the ways. They would teach you the ways to tap into that darkness. So again, Simon did this. He acted on his sinful desires, and then the Lord graciously reveals to him his sin and leads him to repentance. And he does it through Peter. Peter says to him, May your silver perish with you, 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart's not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then listen, you're in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. So Peter, he responds to this new brother's sinful request with a direct and very sharp rebuke. That's what it was. Very direct, very sharp. Then he corrects his thinking. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. That's not referring to the life of Christ. Simon had received the Spirit at this point. Simon was a believer. He had been baptized. He had received the lot of the kingdom. What Peter's talking about is you have neither lot nor matter in, in apostleship. That's what he's talking about. This is a, in a unique apostleship. You can't buy it with money. You don't buy it with experience. It's direct from the Lord. He's correcting his thinking. And then Peter warns him of the seriousness of the sin that's at work in his life. And he calls him to repentance. Your heart is not right before God. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The gall, I think that's how you say it. That's how Jen told me that's how to say it because I didn't know how to say it. So I'm going with gall, okay? Is that right, gall? We'll go with it. He's in the gall of bitterness. That doesn't mean that Simon's struggling with the sin of bitterness. That's, that's, not, that's not what the text is referring to. What, what's being referred to is that it is the bitter fruit that comes from a people the people of God not being steadfast in their commitment to the Lord and His covenant. Fruit comes from the life of Christians. But if we're not steadfast in our walk with Him, if we've gone astray, the fruit that comes is bitter. The author of Hebrews, he warns us, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. So again, not a call to repent of bitterness specifically, but, but, to, but, but to repent of the sin that leads to bitterness and then he calls him to repentance very directly repent of this wickedness pray to the lord that if possible you may be forgiven you read this and in our modern day i think what if we're honest the thought that comes to our mind is kind of like i mean like come on man like simon what are you doing dude you're trying to buy you're trying to buy power in the in the church like come on man like that's like, what, what, are you, what are you doing? You, can, you, can't, you can't do that. It'd be easy for us to assume that, right? And then that, that kind of question to pop in. Remember who he was. Remember the life that he came from. This is who we are as Christians, isn't it? We're redeemed by grace through faith in Christ. And then we begin this journey all throughout life where we're being sanctified. This is what it looks like. It just, this is just his particular sin. So shame on us for thinking that way. Shame on me for thinking that way and looking at Simon like, come on, dude, what are you doing? We all have common pathways for sin. We all have these common roadways that we walk down. And it's God's prerogative and His will and His intention to save us from them. That we would be forgiven. That we too would repent of the wickedness that's within us. That bitter fruit would not come from our lives. We're saved by grace through faith. And yet we're at war with our flesh. But then there's another question that can come up as we read passages like this. And it's aimed at uh, Peter, right? When you, when, you, when you empathize with Simon, you're like, okay, new believer, like, okay, I get it. I've been there. Like, I, I've gone back to, like a dog returning to its vomit, I've gone back to the sin that leads me to death, right? We've all done that. So we can empathize with Simon. So then we look at Peter and we're like, dude, that's kind of harsh, man. Like, that's harsh. Come on, man. Like, this is a brand new, it's a brand new Christian. Like, shouldn't talk like this to him? Come on. Shouldn't you be a little more winsome with that correction? Shouldn't you be a little more gentle with your rebuke? 
But that type of thinking in our mind, it only shows us how little we think of sin. That's what it shows. Peter sees his brother in the throes of a spiritual war with his flesh. And he immediately, directly, sharply rebukes him. Because he desires for this brother to not be taken again into the kingdom of darkness. He desires for fruit to come from his life. It's, it's his desire that this brother would be saved. That he would repent. And so he jumps in very quickly. So Luke, I think Luke includes this story in his account of the Holy Spirit coming to the Samaritans because this is what a Holy Spirit-filled community looks like. And this is how it acts. They love, brother, it's like you were talking about earlier. They love one another enough to exhort one another, to rebuke one another, and to receive it, too. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Remember, the Spirit fell on them. And immediately what Luke points, what Luke points to is a brother being sanctified and another brother being the means through which God is working His will out. Again, sharp rebuke, sharp exhortation. Immediately, brother, repent of this wickedness. You're in the gall of bitterness. Turn from it. And then the other brother who received that going, yes, pray to the Lord on my behalf that none of this would happen. That I wouldn't return to this vomit of sin anymore. That I would walk with God. And then look at the fruit of that type of community. Verse 25. Kingdom advance. Again, unstoppable, conquering kingdom. The Spirit falls. It says, verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, the apostles. Well, you just imagine how fired up they are when they're going back. I mean, just like, to see this, they're just, man, just fired up. And what are they doing? They're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. New believers. Think about this. These new believers in Philip, Again, not an apostle. Because of his faithfulness and what God does, then becomes an instructor to the apostles. Before this, the apostles aren't preaching the gospel to the, to the Samaritan villages. And yet, in light of what God's done, they're learning and going, whoa, the kingdom is open. We, got we preach to everybody now. So it took them two days. To, I don't know how long it took, but it, it took a couple days to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, that city. Now it's taken them weeks because they're stopping off in all these villages preaching the gospel. And the kingdom of Christ, which is unstoppable and is conquering, of which the gates of hell cannot prevail against, is flinging open. It's beautiful. And we're going to see that the next, as, as we continue through Acts. And, and, and Acts even ends with the fact that the kingdom of God is going forward unhindered. It's really beautiful. So, let's be a household of God that loves one another enough to call out sin in each other's lives. Let's be a household of God that then receives those type of rebukes with humble repentance. Because the reality is, Trent, you're an instrument in my life from the Lord, from my sanctification, and vice versa. And that's true. That's We covenanted together last week. That's what that's for. It shows us who's in here. Who can we... This, this is what this body is about. We want to be this... We want to be Christ people here. And let's be the type of church that, that follows in this example. But then, let's be a church that lives in the triumph of the Lord Jesus over the powers of darkness. He is the King. He is ruling and reigning. His kingdom is conquering the powers of darkness. And the means through which He's conquering is through the preaching of everyday disciples like us. Taking this gospel and pushing it out through our fingertips in the everyday stuff of life. That's how the kingdom goes forth. Let's be a church built on that. And then... And then, by God's grace, may we be a church just like these brothers and sisters 
united under one Lord by common faith and a common baptism. Let's be united together in a way that can't be described in any other way. And these guys just love each other. These guys are family. It's a household of households. It's unique. That, that ought to be the testimony of people who come to see us and come are a part, part of our church. So let me pray, and then, um, and, and then we'll keep moving. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you, you are the king of kings, Lord, and that your kingdom is unstoppable, and it is a conquering kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace in our lives, that we, like these Samaritans, that we were pulled out from the kingdom of darkness. We, too, receive light. We, too, receive life. We, too, have been reclaimed as your people, ambassadors now of this glorious kingdom. Give us grace, God, now as we, as we break off in groups. Give us grace to apply this word. Would you even show us in ways in which we may be in the gall of bitterness? We may be, Lord, in, in shrouded in darkness in different ways. Would you give us grace to bring sin to light, that your light may shine upon it, that we may be forgiven, that we may be the people you call us to be. Lord, we love you. I pray this, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.